Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Yes, and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Ricker. How are you, Paul? Look, I'm not too bad, thanks, Peter, but when we were doing the show this time last week, yeah. I, I did think I meant remarked on the market was... Uh, look, there wasn't a lot of reason to buy it, but mm. I don't think we'd have moved <laughs> we as much as we've had in one week. So, no, uh, we didn't expect that, that's for sure. It sort of came a little bit left field from the US, but mm. we, when the US sort of catches a... You know, sneezes, we catch a cold, cold and, and yeah. we've just been following it down. So. Yeah, exactly right. It's interesting for the Switzer report today, I actually pulled out a, a five-year chart of the S&P 500 index, which is the top 500 companies in the US, Paul. And if you notice, if you get a chance to look at it, that there, was, there has been an enormous kick up of that market mm. and since the sell-off it's kind of come back to the usual line of growth so maybe it's kind of the the correction that will refresh this market but at the moment it's looking a little bit on the scary side and talking about scary side house price armageddon stories are everywhere so it's our, our first guest today is shane oliver from amp capital who wrote an interesting story today uh, in the, on Switzer Daily about property and shares and what he thinks it w everything's going. So Shane's uh, interview coming up, I'm sure, will be very insightful. Because Shane has been pretty bullish mm. uh, on the share market, less mm. so on the property market. Mm. I think Shane's a little bit, uh, sees a bit more downside. But yeah. we'll be interested to see just how he's feeling just after the events of this last week. And yeah. I guess, as you said, Peter, it is time to... Uh, you know, these are opportunities uh, by the dips. It's a question when you got to find when, when the right part of the dip is. But yep. uh, we're just timing is everything. But yep. uh, we're just at the moment following in the hands of the US, I guess. Yep. So after Shane, we'll answer some of our uh, listeners' questions, and then we'll finish off with Jason Hulich from Centuria. Uh, this is a company that's done really well in the commercial property price space, and I think he's going to argue that uh, while house prices might be under a bit of pressure. Commercial property prices are heading in the right direction. And Centuria completed a couple of a big capital raising last week to fund a new portfolio, so mm. we can uh, find out what, what that is about as well, Peter. Exactly. Okay, so that's the show coming up. And without any further ado, let's go to our first guest, Shane Oliver, who's Head of Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Welcome to the program, Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Pleasure to be here, Peter. Now, let's... Cut straight to the chase. The market's down a lot of about 80 points as I'm talking to you today. This sell-off, how worried are you about it? I guess all sell-offs get me a little bit worried. You know, you sort of wonder whether, well, this could be the big one. Uh, the trouble is that, as you and I know, when you spend a few years around this industry, around markets, you sort of realise a lot of these corrections come and go. And most of the time, they are just that. And I guess if I could see more evidence that there was big problems in the U.S. economy, such as an impending recession or some major inflation problem or the Fed really jamming the brakes on or overinvestment in something like housing or technology like there was prior to the last two recessions, then I'd be a lot more worried because mm. all the evidence I've seen tells me that historically falls in share markets turn into major corrections but it's usually only when the U.S. is tipping into recession. 
And at the moment, I can't see any evidence of that. I understand why investors are nervous, worries about the Fed, worries about trade and so on. Um, but I think this is more just a correction rather than a major bear market. So, yes, I'm concerned, but I don't think one should get overly concerned about it. I think the real issue is to try and look for opportunities that mm. these sorts of pullbacks provide. Okay, once just for the people who don't follow this regularly, what are the prime causes of this sell-off? <laughs> There's a bunch of factors. The, the, I guess the main one that's been cited is the fact that the Fed's raising interest rates. Uh, they've indicated they have further to go. And uh, that, of course, has led to upwards pressure on bond yields. So we've known for many years interest rate bond yields have been low, so the market starts to worry that well, if we move to a world of higher interest rates and higher bond yields, that'll, uh, that'll destroy us, sort of thing. So that's the first worry. second worry is, of course, the ongoing tensions between the US and China started on trade. Now it seems to be broadening out a little bit. Against all of those two things, you've had higher oil prices, We've got worries about the Italian budget deficit and the potential conflict between the European Commission, uh, which oversees these sorts of things in Europe, and, of course, uh, Italy. Um, but they're, they're the main things that have been weighing. You could also argue, well, tech stocks have had a big run in the US, so they've become a bit vulnerable should uh, Donald Trump start to regulate the tech sector a little bit more. And locally, I guess you could say, well, there's a background of concern about the banks given falling property prices. So all of those things are playing a role. The only thing I would uh, point out, though, is that all the time when markets come down, there's something or other causing it to go down, whether it's worries about Ukraine or worries about Ebola or whatever. There's always something which, uh, which comes together to give us these corrections. But I, I reckon investors really need to focus on the fact that you get a higher return from shares over the long term. Go back to 1900, the average return on shares has been 11 12%. On cash, it's been something like 4.5%. Why have you got that higher return from shares than you get from other assets? It's because you get this volatility in the short term. The volatility in the short term, the corrections, that's the price you pay for getting those higher long-term returns. If we didn't have these corrections, we wouldn't be getting higher returns than other assets out of shares. Shane, just thinking about the US, and uh, obviously um, we're now moving into company reporting season. This is the... um the September quarter results. Expectations, again, are pretty high in the US for profit increases around about 19%, I think, on average. Uh, is this really important in terms of uh, when you think about the direction for the market for the rest of the year, in your view? I think it is. And I'm also reminded of earlier this year when uh, we had similar fears about the Fed raising interest rates and maybe getting a bit more aggressive and putting interest rates up. Um, at the end of the day, that correction ultimately came to an end because investors saw just how strong profits are in the US. And now, of course, part of that strength is due to the corporate tax cuts in the US, around about 8 or 9 percentage points of it. Um, but still, even if you didn't have the corporate tax cuts, you'd be looking at profit growth in the US of somewhere around 10, 12, 13 percent, that sort of number. So it's still a pretty solid number. And that's largely why share markets, US share market in particular, has done reasonably well because you've got this very strong profit growth underpinning it. So if this reporting season turns out to be OK, and I've no reason to think that it won't be, uh, odds are, if we get that 90% number you referred to, odds are we'll probably get a little bit more than that, maybe two or three percentage points more. Um, if that's the case, then I think investors will start to settle down again and say, yeah, the Fed's raising interest rates, but it's mainly because the US economy is stronger. And in any case... 
when we've got interest rates to 2% or 2.25%, whatever it is at the moment, um, that's a long way from being tight. Um, at, at a, it's a long way from being at the point where you'd say this is going to crunch the US economy and crunch earnings. Is there a chance that the impact of tariffs, um, both positively and negatively, on US companies could be a sort of a surprising curveball that affects outlooks and therefore it could be downgrades in the calculation of future profits? It, it could be, um, but most of the estimates I've seen suggest that the tariff increases so far are only knocking about 0.1, maybe 0.2% off US economic growth because I know there's been a lot of talk about it, but this is not 1930 when uh, the Smith-Hawley legislation in the US, this is just as we're going into the Great Depression, the Smith-Hawley increased uh, import tariffs on all American goods to the tune of about 20%. This time around, it's been on a fraction. I think on my calculation, it's about 15% of imports coming to the US that have been subject to these extra tariffs. It's those goods coming from China, not all imports. And the if you look at the increase in average tariffs in the US, it's about one and a half to 1.75%. So it's not 20%. It's 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 going up. There's going to be an impact there. Companies will make a bit of noise about that. But I don't think it's enough to cause a major upset. It will cause nervousness. That's what we're seeing here. That's why we've got this volatility. But it's not enough to cause a huge downswing in profits in the US. Um, I mean, another way you can sort of look at it is say, well, the tariff impost in the US is sort of raising something like 50, 60 billion, whereas the tax cuts, the personal tax cuts, the spending increases associated with fiscal stimulus are many multiples about that. It's something like five, six hundred billion sort of being pumped into the US economy. So you've got some money coming out of the US economy because of the tariff hikes, 50, 60 billion, something about order, whereas you've still got 600, 700 billion going in um, because of the tax cuts and the spending increases that have occurred under, under President Trump. Mm. You, you you threw a scary curveball in, which probably indicates to me that you're reading Fairfax Press every day, Shane. Uh, and that was you mentioned the word house prices, and you didn't mention the word Armageddon, which I always think about when I read a Fairfax story on house prices. But you also linked, linked it to the banks, and a lot of people who listen to us would be worried about um, house prices and banks. So let's start off, first of all, what's your outlook for house prices in Sydney and Melbourne? Because they're the two star- uh, cities that have really rocketed up. What, what is the fear factor for you about the falls over the next couple of years? Uh, I am concerned, and I think they will come down. The thing you've got to notice about all the media, and of course you're part of this, uh, Peter, and maybe I am too, mm. is that bad news sells. Mm. And the, the badder, the scarier... Uh, the more horrible that news is, the more clicks you're going to get. And so that's the way that business operates. And in yep. this world of digital media, there's a lot more competition out there. You have to be scarier than ever before. Um, if you Google the words coming financial crisis, you get something like 115 million references. Hmm. People out there are falling over themselves, trying to look as bearish as possible and as negative as possible. Of course, the same relates to the Australian property market, that people have been calling this saying that they've been seeing this coming for many years. Of course, uh, if they sold their property way back in 2008 in anticipation of a 40% decline, I won't name names here, but if mm. you did that, uh, you'd be looking uh, looking a bit behind at the moment, <laughs> particularly mm. if you did it in share market parlance and you were able to sell it short, uh, you would be suffering a, a big loss. Yeah, you, um, if you were like that, so, you'd be hiding in London now, I would have thought, wouldn't you? 
And those calls, those calls have been made with regular monotony mm. since 2004. I remember reading The Economist magazine that referred us to us as America's ugly system, and that was in 2004. Uh, OECD, IMF regularly had property prices 50% overvalued. Uh, we had calls around 2010 that all bubbles burst. Um, all the ones we've looked at, and I won't name names here again, mm. but uh, all the bubbles we've looked at in the past burst, all 45 of them. Um, this one won't be an exception. Of course, we went down for a couple of weeks and then went up again. Mm. Um, so th- these calls, it's regularly been on 60 minutes. It's regularly been on four corners. Lots of scary stuff out there. Um, now, yes, I do worry about Sydney and Melbourne property prices. I do think they're going to come down further. Um, my feeling has been for some time that top to bottom they'll see a fall of 15%. Um, but, and, and I would say, yeah, there are some downsides to risk to that because of the tightening in bank lending standards that's uh, been driven in recent times, particularly by the regulators, um, and also we're seeing a lot of supply coming on from apartments. So it, it could be a little bit worse than that. But you've got to put all that in context. Firstly, for the five years to the peak, which was uh, last year in August in Sydney, November in Melbourne, Property prices in Sydney rose 70%, in Melbourne they rose 50%. So if you come off 15%, even if it's 20%, um, you're still well up on where you were five years ago Mm. in the great scheme of things. Secondly, the other cities in Australia didn't participate in the boom that Sydney and Melbourne had. So it's it's dangerous to generalise about Australian property. I, I reckon Perth and Darwin, they're close to the bottom. The other cities haven't really done much apart from a one-year spurt in Hobart. Uh, I reckon those other cities will probably go sideways, probably go up a little bit. Uh, so, so Shane, how does, that generalized... how does Sorry? it all fit into your view about banks? Because uh, well, let's take what you say, a 15% uh, fall in Sydney and Melbourne uh, property prices. Uh, banks have been cutting back on lending anyhow. What do you think that means for, for banks? Or are you worried about uh, bank share prices? Uh, not significantly. I, I think they will come under pressure. I think they might will be a relative underperformer, and they've been. You know, you could argue that's been the story for a little while now. Um, but do I see significant cut, uh, cuts in dividends or a you know, huge fall in bank share prices? I think that's unlikely. You've got to bear in mind. This is the third point I was going to make. Um, was that that in America the property market got into trouble over there, and the banks in particular because. They had a lot of non-recourse loans. So if your property price fell below what you paid a year for it or below what you owe on it, then you can just put the keys in the mail and that's the end of your liability. So that that then accentuated the slump in property prices, whereas in Australia we have full recourse loans. If you borrow 400 regardless of the value of the home, you've got to pay that off. And I reckon in the absence of much higher interest rates or much higher unemployment, Australians will continue to pay off their mortgages so I don't see the banks seeing a huge increase in non-performing loans. To get that to happen, you'd have to have a significant downturn in the economy. And I don't think that's going to happen either because there's other parts of the economy which will hold us up. Like mm. infrastructure spending, business investment seems to look healthier, export volumes look okay. So that, that sort of tells me, yes, there's issues here. That's going to be a constraint on bank profit growth. Um, but I don't think they're going to go through a major... Um, downgrade cycle where they see a huge increase in non-performing loans. There will be problems there, but um, just because values fall in those two cities, I don't think it's going to cause an increase in defaults. Yep. Now, look, Shane, I know you're a person who looks at you know the 
fear factor issues out there and you're trying to test them out. And I, I know I've currently been having a bit of a, a Twitter battle with all those people out there all, all expecting you know, Armageddon to come. They all believe that mortgage <laughs> brokers have lied people into loans that they'll never be able to pay back. And, and one, one guy said, well, I brought up the American case like you did. He said, there's only 10 states that have non-recourse loans. He said, you should do your research. So I did my research and found out, yeah, there's 10 states that have mandatory non-recourse loans, but all the other states have non-recourse loans. So there's still a big proportion of non-recourse. It's just compulsory in 10 states. And we don't have them here unless it's in self-managed super funds. But this is the one I hope you've tested out because there is a prominent fund manager who keeps talking about the fear of all these Australians on interest-only loans and when they have to go on to standard uh, variable home loans and paying principal and interest... This is going to cause a major economic problem. And, and so I test that a little yeah. bit by, by looking at what is the current interest-only loan rates and comparing them to the standard variable. They actually end up paying less on standard variable than they are on their interest-only. But have you tested that out, Shane, to think, how, is it going to be a, an enormous kick in the guts and people won't spend money as a consequence <laughs> of this changeover? I, I have looked at it. Uh, quite a bit because that has been a common fear and I think, yes, it's one of the factors you've put up in a list of reasons as to why property prices will come down and there might be some issues there. It's a bit of a constraint on consumer spending. Um, but my understanding of it is that that increase in people having to switch from principal, sorry, from interest only to principal and interest actually started a year or 18 months ago. Mm. And so far there hasn't been a big increase in problems. If you look at the uh, financial stability re review that was put out by the RBA on Friday, yep. um, they point out that non-performing loans have gone up a little bit, but from a very low base, and the bulk of that increase has actually been in WA, which has sort of been at the centre of much tougher economic conditions, yeah. so that explains that. But there's, you know, people have been moving from, non from uh, interest only to principal and interest for the last 18 months or so, and yet we haven't seen um, a, a major problem here. Don't, don't forget. You know, it was the regulator, APRA, who started um, increasing, uh, forcing the banks to increase interest rates and interest-only loans. That mm. was about 18 months ago now. So we haven't seen a huge fallout. Um, yes, I think it's a, a problem. Yes, I think it's a constraint. But I don't think it's enough to cause a major bust in the property market. Um, many of those people can, of course, stay with the, you know, it depends on their contract. Some of them may be able to stay with the sorts of interest-only loans that they have. But, yes, they'd be on higher interest rates. Mm. Um, but, yeah, from what I can see, there's not a major problem there. It's an issue, but not a major problem. It's not enough to cause a major uh, collapse in property prices and force all these people to sell. Okay, Shane. Well, our little discussion today has meant that I will sleep as well as I did last night, tonight. And that's because you're not a fear-mongering expert. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> it's great to hear you'll be able to sleep okay. Okay, thanks, mate. Thanks for thanks, joining Shane. us. Thanks, Bonnet. Yeah, that was Shane Oliver from AMP Capital, and now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. 
Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Okay, Paul, well, we should always point out that the headline rate mentioned in that little commercial is also the same as our comparison rate because there's no difference between fees and charges on our loans, unlike others. But it's also time for us to talk about some of the, the viewers' questions mm-hmm. or listeners' questions, sorry, um, that we've got recently. And one I got from a guy who's got stocks outside a self-managed super fund and he wants to basically sell them to his own self-managed super fund. Uh, And I I said to him, if it's possible, it'll have to be done at market prices. You can't give Mm -hmm. yourself a dodgy price. But if someone say, make a simple example, they had 200 grand in cash in their super fund and they had $200,000 worth of stocks outside, is it possible for that super fund to buy them off the person? Good question, Peter. And the answer is yes, it is. There are there are rules around what your super fund can buy from you, mm. and they're called uh, it's because it's a related party transaction. But shares that are listed on the stock exchange are one of the exceptions. So there's no problem if you effectively your super fund buying shares you own outside super. Yep. Two important things. First of all, it will count as a contribution. So it'll be a non-concessional yep. contribution. So it'll be subject to the cap. Now, of course, the cap for non-concessional contributions is a hundred thousand dollars per annum. Mm. But if you're under 65 and you haven't been making any non-concessional contributions, yeah. you can apply the bring forward rule. Mm. And so potentially you get up to $300,000 in one go. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And secondly, as you said, Peter, it's got to be done at market value. Mm. You can't uh, you know, create some interesting prices. It's just <laughs> not going to be allowed. Yeah. And then thirdly, the other consideration is that when you sell shares to your super fund, you will potentially create a capital gains tax issue, liability, that you may have to pay some capital gains tax mm. yourself. So mm. it, it's, it will count as a disposal for CGT purposes, and so there could be gains or losses that you need to factor in. So that's probably, you know, it, it generally will make sense to get your assets inside your super fund because it's, for most people, it's mm. a far more tax-effective vehicle yeah. to hold assets through one of the reasons you may not is because you might end up with a whole lot of capital gains tax yeah. to pay. And, and I, I guess, you know, I always play the devil's advocate when I'm listening like a, a listener would be. The fact that you, you've got these stocks outside of super and you sell them to put them in the super, you pay the normal capital gains tax. There's no concessional rate, the fact that you're putting them into a super fund? No concessional rate. You should be eligible for the capital gains tax discount, 50%. So yeah. if you're a paying tax at the highest marginal tax rate of 47%, that will bring the effective tax tax rate down to 23.5%. But again, remember, it's only on the gain, and of Mm. course, if you've got some other shares and loss, losses can offset gains. So it's it's a consideration. It's not necessarily a reason not to do the transaction, because for most of us, it's going to be more tax effective to hold the assets through the super system than outside super. Okay, we've got a question here from Ellie from Double Bay in New South Wales, and she says, I keep, being t- um, I keep hearing that ETFs are easy to invest in, but what are they, and are they risky? Great question. Well, look, effectively, all an ETF does is buy a whole lot of other shares, and it it generally does so in a way that most ETFs are what we call fairly passively managed. 
so that they're designed to track the market's performance exactly. So mm. that if, if you invest in an ETF and the market goes up by 1%, mm. the value of your ETF should go up by 1%. 1%. The market falls by 5%, your ETF will potentially fall in 5% as well. And so there are some ETFs that track things like the S&P ASX 200, that's the major market mm. uh, indice. Uh, and they, these ETFs themselves trade on the ASX and uh, they're issued by companies like iShares, which is part of BlackRock, the world's biggest fund manager, mm. trades under the code IOZ. And there's another one that comes out of uh, Spider, which trades under the code STW. Mm. Very easy to invest in, just sort of like any share or any broking platform, just type in the code IOZ or STW. Uh, and if you buy... $10,000 worth, you'll have $10,000 worth of exposure to the stock market. Yeah, I think Vast is the Vanguard Yep, and Van, Van, Vanguard's got one as well. Yeah, yep. Vanguard. And, and the point to make is the ETFs you describe are the less risky ones because for those sorts of ones where they track the index um, and others where they go out and buy the shares, like, for example, with our exchange-traded product, the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, our fund manager goes out and buys the stock's that are behind it. But there are some exotic ones, aren't there, Paul? Yeah. So Derivative-type ones, which there, can be risky. There are, as I said, I've started to describe some very standard ETFs, index tracking like uh, IOZ and mm. slightly more actively managed like uh, SWTZ suits. Mm. But there are some ETFs that who then specialise in, you know, get a bit more exotic. So they're ones that just track healthcare companies or just track telecommunication or companies. Artificial intelligence. Or they're ones that have, uh, you know, some good friends of ours with the stock code Robo, which, which looks at uh, companies involved in robotics, robotics and artificial, yeah. artificial intelligence. So they become, there are hundreds, literally now almost thousands of ETFs listed. So mm. they become more and more specialised. Um, in the United States, it's even bigger. And of course, there are, Effectively, sort of like derivative type ETFs that invest in. They're the uh, ones a little bit more scary. They're the ones a little more scary. So big wins, but big losses. Yeah. Mm. So there are some higher risk ETFs, uh, and you've got to be, you know, always pays to do your research to understand what you're investing in. Mm. But if you're just looking to get sort of pretty broad exposure to the stock market, not take too much risk, you want to get market performance, then investing is sort of like a, an index based ETF such as STW or IOZ or even SWTZ, that's a pretty low-risk way to get involved in the, invest in the stock market. Okay, one quick one. Jason from Port Melbourne in Victoria. Could you explain what the deal is? You obviously watched Seinfeld saying that. What is the deal with interest-only loans? Why would you want one of these and who goes after them? Well, that, again, that's another question, and they've changed. It's a good question, and and they've changed in the way they're being used a little bit because in the good old days, interest-only loans were only used by investors. Yeah. And the reason investors want to just pay just the interest is that it maximised their cash flow by not having to reinvest any, pay off any principal. principal. Mm. They kept more cash flow, and they could invest in another property. Yeah. And, of course, the interest is 100% deductible. Mm. So... As long as the but bank principal was, repayments aren't. Principal repayments aren't. So as long as banks were happy, yeah. uh, if you're an investor, they really, and you're getting the full tax deduction, you actually don't want to pay your loan off. Yeah. That's the theory. And so interest-only loans were designed for investors. What happened a few years ago, and I can't tell you exactly when this changed, Peter, that when the, particularly when the real estate market got a bit uh, 
uh, went up a little mm. bit. A lot of sort of, I won't say um, younger investors, mm. but a lot of people that started to move into some of the suburbs that had big price growth started to use interest-only loans as a way almost like buying their first home. Yeah. They didn't actually pay any principal back. No. And that's exactly what the APRA sort of come to realise. Mm. And, and whereas uh, I think the market was totally horrified when the, da- the data revealed that more than 30% of, of loans were interest only. Yeah. And they were never supposed to be that much. Mm. And so APRA's, well, that's the regulators, started to crack down on it and said to a lot of the banks, well, you've really got to be really careful about this. Mm. And in, in preference, you know, you shouldn't have people that are non-investors with interest-only loans, and even with investors, they need to be a bit more careful. Yeah. i got to say, I feel a bit guilty about this, Paul, because back in probably early, I don't know, late 1990s, we had an interest-only loan on a property that mm-hmm. we, we'd bought and we planned to, to renovate it and then eventually sell it, and that was our strategy, and, and it, it gave us the cash flow, and we actually did sell it at a really good price. We timed the market well. But uh, not many people were doing that in those days, and I think a lot of people, particularly mortgage brokers, started to see that it was a... As house price took off, you're right, they could see an opportunity to put, put people into these expensive homes, but it's come back to be a negative. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I was blown away when I found out it was 30% over 30%. Surprise I mean, me. I thought it was like about 2 or 3%. Because yeah. <laughs> when I was in the banker yeah. some way back, Peter, yeah. hardly anyone had an interest-only loan, only the uh, best investors. investors. Yep. And then it sort of became almost the way that a lot of, I won't say yuppies, but a lot of y- younger people started to afford to be able to buy... Yeah. You know, homes in some of the inner city parts of Sydney and Melbourne, and uh, mortgage brokers got onto it and found they could borrow more. If they didn't mm. have to repay it, mm. they could actually afford, more, afford yeah. to pay more. Afford I, I, to pay more I must admit, I, I do blame people like you and me who spend a, a lot of time explaining stuff to people. And once you explain stuff to people, people think outside the square and away it goes. But uh, that's a very interesting one. So, from our point of view, then, if you are a, a conventional investor, and you are in a really secure position, you probably will find that an interest-only loan, uh, in, even in this difficult environment, Paul. Yeah, look, it's still got to work for a lot of investors. Yep. And if you've got good security, good cash flow, uh, and uh, you should still be talking to your bank about an interest-only loan, you will pay more. Yep. But I think for someone doing buying their home they're going to live in, mm. uh, I'd still... I, as banks are going to be really circumspect yep. about interest only in that situation. Okay, that's our questions for this week. Of course, if you've got any questions for us, just send them to info at switzer.com.au and uh, Paul and I will definitely answer those questions for you. So, um, time for another ad break and after the ad break we'll be talking to Jason Hulich who is from Centurion. He's talking about the outlook for commercial property and commercial property prices at a time when everyone seems to be so scared about house prices in Sydney and Melbourne. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? I always forget that where is Matisse flying there, but it's very good advice, Paul, I reckon. Now, 
talking about good advice, a guy who knows a lot about commercial properties is Jason Hulich, and Jason is from uh, Centuria. He's head of real estate and funds management at Centuria, and he's going to talk to us about the outlook for commercial property, and um, he's coming up right now. Jason, thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, you're head of real estate and funds management at Centuria, and I think a lot of people don't fully understand the, the sort of the two streams that make up Centuria. You know, one where you're investing in big um, buildings, one-off buildings, but then also there's the funds management side. So why don't you just explain it to our listeners how Centuria operates? Yeah, sure. So Centuria is an ASX-listed fund manager. Uh, we have $5.5 billion in, in assets under management. About $4.5 billion is in real estate. So we have two listed REITs, which are listed on the ASX. We have a Centurion Metropolitan REIT, which invests in office buildings, and Centurion Industrial REIT, which invests in industrial warehouses and logistics facilities. We then also have um, unlisted property funds, where we, we invest in mainly commercial assets, um, and we have high net worth and individuals investing into those unlisted funds. On the other side of the business, we also have investment bonds, so we've got a, about a billion dollars of assets under management in the Friendly Society investment bond structures um, that, inv- that invest in a variety of asset classes. And does, does all the money you make across these three areas end up going into the listed fund? Yeah, so we make, basically we make fees for managing these assets and that, that fee income uh, streams up into Centura Capital, which is the ASX-listed fund manager. Okay, right. So that's the that's the, the summary of it. Paul, do you want to sort of take over and ask a few questions that people would be interested in? Yeah, let's talk about commercial property, mm-hmm. Jason, because uh, probably very important to distinguish between that and the, and the retail or residential property market where we just read from every day there's another article talking about uh, Armageddon. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, we've just been talking to uh, Shane Oliver, who... Uh, Look, he's not bearish on the residential property market, but he thinks it's probably got a little bit further to go, and I think mm. that's consistent with with some of the more sensible views. Sensible views now, but the commercial property market—that's the market for big office buildings. It's a very different market. So, I understand that you're pretty favourably disposed to that still. We are. Look, as I said, we specialise in, in both commercial office buildings and industrial facilities, um, and both have got quite a few tailwinds at the moment. So, looking at the industrial side. Um, you know, we've got 40 assets worth over a billion dollars in our industrial REIT. And um, that, those markets have been extremely strong. The main driver uh, being two things. Probably uh, the most important has been the whole online retail trend. As that grows, a lot of the retailers are probably giving up their space in the, in the you know, retail shopping centres. Um, and what they need is they need warehousing close to the city mm-hmm. so that they can do you know, same day or next day delivery. So we're seeing a lot of demand both from tenants um, as well as investors looking to get into that industrial space. On the commercial office space, and we own about 40 assets around the country in all the major markets, both in our unlisted and listed vehicles, um, we're seeing a lot of strength. We're seeing a lot of tenant demand, uh, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne at this stage. Um, Vacancy rates some of the lowest on record across the board. Um, Infrastructure is driving a lot of demand in, in New South Wales. And obviously population growth down in, in Melbourne, Victoria, is, is, is driving a lot of demand. 
We're also seeing some of the markets that have struggled over the last few years, such as Brisbane and Perth, with the mining downturn. Um, they are actually improving quite significantly as well, and we're seeing vacancy rates uh, declining quite substantially over the last 12 months. And as the fallen vacancy rates, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, you mentioned infrastructure. Is that also just due to lack of, you know, hasn't been a lot of investment in new buildings? That's, that's true. Like, if you look at the supply, um, out into the metropolitan locations where we have a lot of assets, so into the suburbs outside the CBD, um, there's been very, very little supply across the board over the last 10 years. Um, you're starting to see a little bit of supply come into Parramatta. But still, most of the other major markets, you've actually seen negative supply. So what's happened is you've seen um, buildings that have been office buildings for many years being taken out of the market and be turned into residential. So you've seen that in the CBD, but you've also seen it in a lot of locations such as St. Leonard's and Chatswood mm-hmm. um, and some of those North Shore commercial hubs where there's a lot of demand for residential assets. So you've got some really good fundamentals there uh, driving demand. Uh, for uh, commercial assets. And, mate, um, you've actually um, made a point that uh, recently there's been a successful raising of more than $450 million over the Centuria platform, and this is, what, the biggest equity raise this year for REITs? Yeah, so we just bought um, a portfolio of four very high-quality large commercial assets off an American group called Heinz. And uh, the portfolio was... Um, a building in Sydney, up in Chatswood, uh, a building down in Docklands in, in Melbourne, and two buildings in Brisbane. Very nice, modern, large office buildings. Um, and, and we bought this majority into our um, metropolitan REIT. Mm. So that's buying um, 100% shares in three of the assets and a 25% share in one of the assets. And the other party coming into that fourth asset is one of our largest investors, which is a large family office and they've taken a stake in the Chatswood asset. Um, for this, we've done a, a large equity raising both in CMA, so in the Metropolitan REIT, we're raising $276 million, and, uh, and that went through last week, and we exchanged unconditionally on these assets. We've also um, done a $180 million raise in CNI in our, in our head stock, and the reason for that is we hold 23% of our Metropolitan REIT, so we hold that on balance sheet, and we want to obviously take up our rights in this offer. So we've, we've uh, raised in CNI so that we can take up our rights and, and as part of this purchase of the, this portfolio. And it seems like a lot of optimism is prevailing at Centuria. Um, and, and some of my listeners might say, well, what are the triggers that turn people like you from optimistic to pessimistic? And are, are there any triggers out there that might be worrying you a tiny bit? Um, look, at the moment, obviously one of the big drivers with real estate investment is interest rates. Um, um, and look, we're, I think we're of the view, like most people, that you know, they are going to stay low for a while. And even when they do start ratcheting up, we can't see um, huge increases. So I think the interest rate um, issue keeps being put off. And I think a lot of the most the major banks are saying, you know, maybe early or late next year for the first. Um, so it's not that. Um, so with with uh, with real estate, you know, it is cyclical, um, and you know we are in a strong market. Um, so there's nothing that's obvious for us. Um, all the major markets are improving. Um, when we look at our portfolio, we've got sort of 500 tenants, both small and large businesses, 
um, across the 80 assets we own. And, you know, every week we're looking at arrears and so forth. And the arrears across all those businesses are minimal. You know, we're talking about Mm -hmm. 0.1% at the moment. So they're probably the lowest we've ever seen. So if you look at that metric, um, it's all looking quite positive. And and you mentioned about... uh sort of the fear or prospect of higher interest rates and the effect that that can have. Um, you, you don't sort of sense that the market's starting to put the factor that in now? I mean, we've seen a little bit of weakness in uh, some of the uh, real estate investment trusts on the ASX in the last uh, week or two, but um, how's that impacting your sort of view on the market going forward? Look, I think that, you know, that was a day-to-day thing, and I think, it, you know, I think they'll bounce back. Um, you know, if you look at the portfolio that we just bid for, um, you know, it's a very high-quality portfolio. Um, you know, the, 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 there was 12 parties in the mix. Um, we had some of the biggest groups in Australia and some of the biggest groups from offshore all looking at the portfolio, looking to purchase the portfolio. So we've got a lot of demand for um, particularly high-quality real estate at the moment. I just can't see that dying off. All right, Jace. Well, thanks for joining us, and of course, we hope you're absolutely right. Um, uh, it's, it's a it's a positive outlook, and uh, I, I would say that the strength of the Aussie economy is also another underpinning thing that um, you know, makes me suspect you're going to be right. Yeah, thanks, Peter. All right, mate. Thanks, Jason. So that was Jason Hulich from Centuria. Paul, are you comfortable with commercial uh, prices? Look, I am, Peter. I, I know from personal experience just how tight the uh, rental market still mm. is in Sydney. Yep. I'm, uh, I suppose I'm just a little bit wary about the impact higher interest rates could have on these markets because uh, traditionally, you know, commercial property markets been a strong correlation with mm. when interest rates come down, commercial property prices go up and vice versa. So I'm a little wary, mm. but... If you're trying to uh, find space in Sydney and to a lesser extent in Melbourne at the moment, mm. you know, the, as, as he said, vacancy rates are mm. really low and, uh, you know, you're dealing with some uh, – it's a challenge. So. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to us renegotiating no. our <laughs> rental agreement next November. Not this November, next November, thank God for that. But also, Paul, I did like the, the point he made that the, the level of arrears with yep. all those tenants, yep. what, 600 tenants or something like that or even more – was really small. That must be a really good indicator. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. And we look forward to talking to you next week on The Switzer Show. Quentin time! Quentin time!